Production funding for Ruckus has been provided by gifts from Dave and Jamie Cummings, the Fred and Lou Hartwig family, Peter and Barbara Gattermeyer, the Courtney S. Turner Charitable Trust, John H. Mize, and Bank of America N.A. co-trustees. And by viewers like you. Thank you. Welcome to Ruckus, our weekly food for thought flight over the news of the day and the trends of the times. I'm Mike Shannon. The Ruckheads join me shortly in our topics this week. The endorsements begin in the mayor's race. Kansas GOP fails to endorse the governor's capers plan. Roast and toast and no endorsement from congressional Democrats for the president's call for a wall. And that's where we start with our newsmaker segment. We are pleased to have with us the recently elected Kansas 3rd District U.S. Representative Sharice Davids. Davids, a Democrat, won a stunning victory over Republican Kevin Yoder last November. Representative Davids is an attorney and one of the first Native American women to serve in the U.S. House. Congresswoman Davids, welcome to Ruckus. Thank you very much for coming in. Oh, well, I'm uh, happy to be here, Mike. Well, as one of your constituents, I'm especially pleased to have this chance to meet you and to talk with you today. Political analysts are saying the energy in the Democratic Party has moved to the left, and that's because of people like you and the other new members of Congress elected last November, that the party has now moved leftward and embracing a lot of liberal programs not endorsed in the past. Do you agree with that? The energy is on the left? Well, I don't know. I don't know about a full shift further um, one direction or the other. Definitely this class shifted the, uh, shifted the Congress a little bit younger. And I think that... Um, Does that mean more progressive? I think it definitely means a, a lot more energy. Although when I, when I showed up in D.C., even for the orientation, I noticed that um, the energy that the Democratic caucus had was um, there was a lot of excitement. Tons of people were excited about having kind of this new new class that was the largest, my understanding is the largest uh, class since Watergate um, or, you know, the aftermath of Watergate. And so I think that I don't I don't know that I think that the entire caucus is shifting. Uh, there are a lot of races that were similar to to the Kansas third, actually, where um, seats flipped from uh, Republican to Democrat, um, or the districts are very purple. And but it, it I wouldn't think there upset, are more of those. It wouldn't upset you, would it, if the party had moved to the left? Don't you consider yourself on the left side of the Democratic Party? Well, I consider myself to be a pragmatic. Um, you know, and uh, if you, even if you look at some of the um, caucuses there are out there, I'm, I'm part of the New Dem caucus, which is... Uh, what I consider to be the most uh, a very pragmatic caucus and you know an attempt to get things done Let me get you to talk about immigration bipartisan way. Uh, the president signed the emergency declaration Hoping to get the money to further build a wall along the southern border. You think he was wrong to do that? I think there's a lot of issues with the president circumventing the I mean well, it, just, in the, the Constitution, just the wall part. What about the wall itself? Are you opposed to? Extending the wall that now exists. Well, yeah, I'm a, I'm opposed to spending money in places that are not efficient uses of of the appropriations that that Congress is uh, constitutionally mandated to to set forth. The president consistently um, switched around how much money the the 
quote-unquote wall would require, where it would be, how long it should be. And really, at the end of the day, what we need to be thinking about is, is smart border security, smart um, you know, ways of spending our money that are efficient, and the wall just wasn't that. Well, Speaker Pelosi has called the wall immoral. Do you think a wall is immoral? I think the president's approach to the conversation around what the wall was supposed to stand for, um, I think it falls in line with a lot of the rhetoric that he has previously used. And part of the reason during the campaign when I was running, you know, I was I, I consistently said that the president's rhetoric and dehumanizing and categorizing entire groups is um, it's just wrong and it doesn't feel um, like the country that I want to be, um, that I want us to be, and that I think that a lot of us believe we are. But, but is the wall immoral? Well, the idea, I think that to say a wall is immoral, it's yeah. an inanimate object. Oh, yeah, I don't think walls are moral. The concept or, of it. Uh, one of your colleagues, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, has introduced a resolution calling for a Green New Deal, mm -hmm. dramatic changes, doing away with fossil fuel in 10 years or so. Do you think any of that's practical? Do you endorse the Green New Deal? Well, there the Green New Deal also ha contained a lot of other things that weren't solely focused on Medicare um, for all. climate change and that sort of thing. Um, I think that, you know, I'm sitting on the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, and if there's a place where we could see a lot of progress on climate change, I mean, I, climate change is a real problem. And um, our approach to how we get to more renewables um, at some point in the future, getting to to 100% renewables uh, is going to require that every single one of us sitting on these committees, whether it's transportation or the select committee on climate change or the small business committee where I'm at, we all have to be thinking about these issues. None, there's never going to be a one-size-fits-all solution to this. It's going to take a collective action. Almost out of time. Let me ask you two quick questions. Give me quick answers, if you would. Do you support <laughs> Medicare for all? Yes or no? Uh, I, I support increasing access to affordable quality health care for as many people as possible, as quickly as possible. Free college? I want us to, I want us to be concentrating on the K-12 through 12, um, public education system that, of course, is mostly at the state level. Uh, we have to do something about the student loan debt crisis. Sadly, we're out of time. I hope you'll come this back. We can talk some more. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Pleasure to meet you. Thanks so much for coming in. Please have me back. I will. That's Kansas 3rd District Congresswoman Sharice Davids. Now let's meet the panel and start a ruckus. Sean Saving is a labor activist and part of the Heartland Labor Forum at KKFI Radio. Denidre Herbert is with the Conservative Sentinel website. Lisa Johnston is a columnist and consultant, and Woody Kozad is head of the Kozad Company, a government relations firm. Well, let's begin with our reaction to the David's interview. Before we talk about her views, let's talk about her performance. She has not done a lot of interviews and is still a relative newcomer to politics. Forget about her party and her positions. How did she come across as a guest being interviewed? Let's start with Sean. I think she's still getting her sea legs. I mean, she's brand new, new to politics. Um, this is a lot of attention. 
it's not easy to sit in front of the lights and in five minutes answer a bunch of questions and also realize that you, as a politician, you have to answer to constituents and get reelected. So I think she's working it out like a lot of these freshmen are going to have to do. What do you think, Denise? I think she didn't answer a single question. There, almost every question was yes or no. Is the wall immoral? We don't know what she thinks. Does she support the new Green Deal? I don't know. Free college? Mm, maybe. All of the questions you asked her, she didn't answer any of the questions. She um, deflected and turned. So I guess that's what a politician's supposed to do. So great job. But she seemed pleasant, did she not? She seemed pleasant. Tried to answer the questions. Uh, sure. I realize it was she, a short interview, and, and it's hard to give full responses. She did to exactly questions. what a politician is supposed to do, which is turn the question, turn the conversation into a direction that is more pleasant and more. Um, more assisting to helping her get reelected. Well, let me turn the conversation to Lisa now. Uh, the first question I asked uh, Congresswoman Davids was, is the energy in the Democratic Party on the left side now, leading toward more liberal, more progressive, maybe even mm -hmm. some would say socialist, uh, do you think it is moving that direction? I think that there is a faction of the party that is, and I think that it seems like there's a lot of movement that way because a lot of the young upstarts that we see being interviewed tend to swing a little bit more left, a little bit more progressive, but there are still establishment uh, moderate Democrats out there. So I don't want people to get the idea that they're gone. It's just that a lot of the fascination right now is with the newer folks coming on the scene and they tend to be a little bit more progressive. We didn't get too far into the immigration question before time ran out, but on that topic she seemed to be uh, not happy with the idea of extending the border wall. Do you find that, that answer uh, the wrong one for what we need? Well, she didn't have an answer that was anything other than a talking point. Look, politicians bob and weave for all the reasons that Sean said. However, it's a good practice to have one issue, controversial issue, where when I ask you a question, bang, I get an answer right in the nose, and everybody knows where I stand. Now, that gives you a license to kind of shuffle on some other stuff. So she shuffled on just about everything. She needs to decide which of these issues is a moral issue to her, mm -hmm. and when you ask her about that issue, pop, you get the answer right now, and there's no doubt about it. She's not ready for that. She's still working, I think, out her identity as a politician. You know, I, and someone needs to really know who they are to do what you're describing, and I agree that's better. But I think that she's still working But it somebody out. in politics ought to have some sense of the kinds of questions they'll be receiving in an interview. Well, this is why it's, I would say, maybe a little bit irresponsible to send somebody who has absolutely no political experience into the U.S. Congress. You might want to start at city council. You might yeah, want to start at school board. Okay. You might want to start at... Um, State uh, State Senate or State State House. I just think or the White House or, or the White House. <laughs> yeah. I, well, and I think there's an argument to be made about sending somebody who has no political experience to top offices in the country for a variety of reasons, including you don't know what you think on a lot of topics. That's 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 yeah. rough. Well, I thought the Green New Deal would be something she would respond to. It's been forefront at the news for the last week or so. Do you have any thoughts about the Green New Deal? Does that seem it's realistic a, to you? It's a, it's, an, it's a policy goals document. I mean, a lot, a lot being made of this that's really, you know, the thing is, it's a policy goals document that meets the challenges 
that the, that the problem, that's uh, the, the, the scale of the problem. I mean, we have to actually start talking about this. We have ignored talking about this for 30 years. We have known since Kyoto in 1994 this was coming, and we have ignored it. We've done very, very little. So to say, oh, this is unreasonable, hey, you know what, it's, it's too costly. You know what the cost of not doing anything is going to be? A whole lot more. I don't think we actually know, do we? No, I don't. Oh, no, we there's do. a, there's an assessment think, last December that the federal government put out. We're the only country in the world that's actually reduced its carbon emissions in a given year, from the beginning of the year to the end. And we did that not through government action, but because we shifted over to natural gas from other and the economy, and the economy some, stalled. Even some on the left are admitting that it's a joke. The, 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 the document fuels. as it is is yeah. put out is, is not realistic in terms of the timeline. Okay, so mixed, mixed reactions about the guest and positive reviews for the interviewer. Oh, absolutely. Well, you didn't ask us about the interview. We didn't. I, I don't need to. Just last week on Ruckus, we talked about what some saw as a lack of enthusiasm among voters for the Kansas City-Missouri mayor's race and the need for something to jolt the system. A couple of jolts were forthcoming over the weekend. First, Freedom Incorporated, Freedom Inc., the influential African-American group, endorsed Councilman Quentin Lucas in the mayor's race. Lucas is one of three African-American council members running in the April primary. The other two are Jermaine Reed and Alicia Kennedy. Another endorsement came from north of the river, where Forward Kansas City gave its blessing to attorney and non-council member Steve Miller. The group also praised but did not endorse Councilman Scott Wagner, the only candidate in the April 2nd race who actually lives in the Forward Kansas City region. There have been other endorsements, and there will be more. But when voters actually go to the polls, do these endorsements matter to them, Woody? Well, they do to enough of them to make a difference when you have this many candidates in the race. Somebody's going to make the final. Two people are going to make the finals. And if you look at this race, it looks like they're liable to make it by a few votes over whoever comes third and fourth and fifth. So you get an endorsement. Let's start with freedom. Freedom still a lot of people in the African-American community look to them for leadership and guidance and tend to vote the way freedom thinks, uh, tells them they probably ought to vote. Uh, that could be enough votes right there to make a difference. Uh, forward Kansas City, less so. But still, there are people who like that organization, like its agenda and so on. Doesn't take many votes to make a difference when there are this many candidates. I, one thing I do want to say is thank you to the Democratic presidential candidates because their primary is the only political race in America that have more candidates in it. <laughs> the Kansas City mayor's race. Well, but, the Republican race in 2016 yeah, had 17, yeah. I think. I yeah. think they'll. So make I that. anyway, well, I think well, yes, well, they do make a difference. Quick question: uh, Is there another major organization that has an endorsement that will make a significant difference? Probably the Kansas City Star, but a private organization. The Citizens Association, Citizens Association used to. Yeah. It's really lost a lot of its punch, um, but, but they will make their endorsements at some point. I think they're less likely than the more narrowly based groups like Freedom and Ford Kansas City, which have a segment that they appeal to. Uh, the citizens used to have a wide appeal to the whole city. Now they just don't make much difference. Sean, when people do go out and start debating in the mayor's race, I guess that's already begun to some extent. Again. What are the topics that people care about? Well, in my circles, it's, it's housing. It's, it's housing affordability, and it's, it's giving away tax money for developments in areas where it doesn't really seem to be a blighted area anymore. I mean, I don't see why we're giving away so much money to downtown and getting... 
$1,500 affordable housing uh, units out of it. So I think that's what's concerning a lot of people. North, Northlanders have their issues. There's the airport stuff. Uh, there's the east side and simply infrastructure. Um, but right now, I think it's, 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 it's going to come down to who's going to actually come out and get attention. Because, right, I mean, nobody, you know, nobody's really talking about it. The Helling's article in the Star this uh, yeah. last week was spot on. Like nobody even knows who's running for mayor in this mm -hmm. city. I mean, the, the politicos all do. Well, and they said there wasn't any advertising yet, but yeah, Steve Miller is doing radio commercials, and yeah. they're yeah. pretty good. He does them himself, uh, I think, and uh, sounds like uh, he, he has some issues to stress. Well, I, Miller's been doing well raising money. Uh, so has Jolie, and so ha has. Who, the, who has the labor money on that? Is it Taylor? Who has got most of the, anyway, so, but, sure. uh, but I hear he's burning through it pretty mm -hmm. fast. Uh, so I, right now, I, I just look at how much money they have because somebody's got to sort himself out yeah. or right. herself yeah. out. And the first thing you need to do that is money. So if I were handicapping this thing right now, I'd just look at how much you got on hand. Well, and April 2nd is approaching fairly quickly. And We're at nearly the end of February. What about KCI? Is that going to go on forever? Surely that will be a major debate during the campaign, and some of the council people who are running were all part of the decision-making. Right. It seems like it's going to go on forever, and certainly it'll last through this race uh, and will be a point of discussion, I think, and those who were involved in the planning and negotiation and had some you know, maybe questionable behavior in that or some behavior that voters might not like, there may be a price to pay for that. But I really think that for most voters, KCI is not going to be the number one issue on their agenda. They're more concerned about things right outside their front door. Like Sean said, housing is important. Safety is important. Homicide rates. Homicide rate. Tax I would rates, include in that, potholes. you know, potholes, yes, yeah. infrastructure, potholes. all those kinds of things. Dimitri, you, you worked for the Kobach gubernatorial campaign, so you're around the political process. Uh, no, I was going to ask you about endorsements. How, how important do you think they are? I don't, in, a, in general, I don't think they're that important, but in this race where they're 500 candidates and there's going to be maybe 15% of the pop, of registered voters show up to vote, they're going to make a huge difference. There's so many people to sort through. People are going to look through, okay, I like the, you know, these are my friends and this is, you know, I'm, I'm involved with Freedom Incorporated. They say this is the guy, I'm going to go with him because I don't know who these other people are and I trust their judgment. I think it's going to matter in this race. All right. Uh, when Kansan sent Democrat Laura Kelly to Cedar Crest to govern, and a significant number of Republicans to the legislature, no one thought it would be smooth sailing. And so far, that's an accurate assumption. The most recent scuffle deals with CAPERS, the Kansas Public Employees Retirement System. Governor Kelly wanted to refinance, re-amortize the state's payment to the retirement fund, making smaller payments to the fund now, but paying more into it over the long haul. The plan was designed to save $770 million over the next five years, presumably for use elsewhere, but cost $7 billion more over three decades. Capers' plan was defeated in the House by the Republican majority, but with a few Democratic votes as well. So, Denitri, this question, is the plan dead, and does it suggest that there's more conflict on the horizon? I hope the plan is dead, and yes. I, I, it, Financially, it's just ridiculous. Nobody would do that with their household budget unless they were really, really underwater. We're not underwater. There's still, without a capers reamortization, there's still a little bit of money left to do some things. Not everything she wants to do, but some things. 
Um, yes, there's going to be more fights. I look for the next fight to be, I don't know, the capers thing isn't even going to make it to her desk. The reamortization is dead on arrival. Um, Senate Bill 22, which is the Kansas windfall tax, the federal reform. Um, Getting the Kansas system in line with the federal changes, right? Yes. Um, Kansas would like to keep that money. Constituents like me would like to have some of that money back in my pocket. I think that's going to make it to the governor's desk. It might be the first bill that makes it to her desk. And when it was, when it does, she, I think she vetoes it. And then that is where the conflict is going to really start. All right, Lisa, let me ask that same question to you. Is the Keepers plan dead now and uh, more conflict to follow? I think in all likelihood it's it's not going to go anywhere because I don't think that the legislature is going to cooperate with that. And if you'll remember when I was on last month, I actually didn't agree with that particular suggestion. I didn't think it was a good idea because even without it, you still end the year with $541 million, I think. So they still have a strong ending balance. So it's not necessary to do that. So I think that, you know, there will continue to be friction. There will continue to be drama. I do think Denitri's right. I think the governor will veto. And I think that that is a little bit precarious right now. We still don't know exactly what the courts are going to say on education funding. I think it's too early for us to I try to launch. I think we could probably guess what the courts are going to say about education funding. It's too early to launch headlong into considering a tax reduction quite yet. I mean, I always like to pay the lowest amount of tax possible, too. But at the same time, we have to invest in our priorities, so we have to make sure the amount of revenue we have is right. And there's no question Kansas has had financial problems over the past several years. Absolutely. And we don't problems. want to recreate that giant hole that we dealt with because the tax policy was not properly thought through. Well, do, you, do you think Kelly's going to move forward on Medicaid expansion? I think she wants to try, absolutely. I think that that will also be a, a point of friction, and yeah. there's going to be some arguing about Not, it. But I think uh, that she definitely wants to try to do that. I want to ask Woody about it. You, you hear so many people say federal government pays for most of it. It's billions of dollars you wouldn't have otherwise. Why do you oppose it? Why do some oppose the expansion of Medicaid? Well, a couple of reasons. The first one is they think it's just a first step on the road to socialized medicine, and they're not buying any more. The second, they don't believe for a second that it's going to, in the end, do anything but bankrupt the states. Warren Hearns, in 1968, when they were starting Medicaid, said, this is going to bankrupt the states. In every state, in the, you don't like the fact we're not giving enough money to the University of Missouri? Guess why we aren't? Guess where it's going? It's going to Medicaid. And so they've had the so, conservative legislators have had enough. They say, we're, we can't get any money for any other priority because we have to pay for this all the time. We cut Medicaid under Governor Blunt in our state. We're right back at the same stand now 10 years later. And why the case or what's the case well, for Medicaid expansion? People are sick. They have no access to health care. So we just let people die? I mean, the problem is here, folks, we have Bring me a corpse. Have I've never seen anybody. You've, never, an, you've really never seen. Oh, so you don't Oregon know. So you don't know people that have health insurance. Most of my there, friends don't have. There was health an insurance. Oregon study that said. You said coverage, and then you said people are dying, and those are two different there's, things. If you get well, if you get sick and you don't have health insurance and you get real ailments, you're going to die. And you we do have this ER. ramshackle problem and that with the Affordable Care Act, more money. the gap more between the Medicaid. Affordable Care oh. Act and Medicaid as it exists now. 
And so there was the presumption when that was passed that the states were going Poor people to apparently just don't count. make well, the changes, and then some didn't, and we didn't. And so now we have this this gap that no, people are But if the into. federal government cuts back its commitment to Medicaid, which it will, then it, it costs will, the right. states, is which that it not will do. Certainly, but and Sean, look, I'm willing to pay in the price I pay for my insurance for the poor guy to go to the ER. And you can. Have and you ever, do you know so don't tell me I don't care about you. Do well, I'm paying what for are we doing about it? Because if you've ever been to Truman to go get the indigent health care, do you know what that's like? I've sat with people through that for hours and hours and hours to get basically minimal care that doesn't really solve most of their problems. This is not the solution. The current solution we have now is not it. Uh, not I'm going working. to be ill if we don't end this and move <laughs> along on time because we are supposed to go over to the soapbox now for okay. roast and toast where the Ruckheads have 30 seconds each to activate, appreciate, or devastate. We start with Lisa. I was outraged to learn that Amazon, while it brought in $11.2 billion in profit, will not pay any federal tax and, in fact, will get a $129 million rebate. If you want to know who the real takers are in this society, it's these mega-profitable corporations who don't pay a dime in federal tax to support the country that's made them a success. But the fault for this lies with those who pass the laws that allow this reprehensible tax avoidance. All right, Sean. Well, well, Republicans in Jeff City are once again giving the middle finger to the people of Missouri. Bills are advancing through the legislature, and that would gut the state's open records laws, specifically making lawmakers' records closed to the public if they pertain to proposed legislation and legislative process. Missouri voters made it, made it overwhelmingly clear that legislators are not to be exempt from state sunshine laws. By passing Amendment 1, proponents say they need to protect the privacy of their constituents and be able to freely debate legislation, yet we already, the law already protects this. So as state legislators, you work for all of us. And I have to ask, if you got not doing anything wrong, what have you got to hide? All right, Woody. Uh, a toast to the poet Keats. He died almost exactly 200 years ago, and yet he foresaw the present state of the Democratic Party, and he wrote the opening line to his poem, Hyperion, fanatics have their dreams, wherewith they weave a paradise for a sect. All right, Denidri. Uh, I'm reserving this roast for Puxatani Phil, and by roast, I mean seriously, <laughs> I'd like to put him on the grill. He gave me hope that this winter was going to end, and it just keeps going. I need vitamin D. So, uh, Puxatani Phil, I'm, I'm really angry. Fix it. C and D. And finally, a toast to former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie for his new book, Let Me Finish. It's a look at his life, his relationship with President Trump, and his disdain for many of the president's current and former advisors. Christie is also a Republican political analyst for ABC News, where he is probably very lonely. <laughs> and that's Ruckus for this week. We'll be back next Thursday at 7. Now for the Ruckettes and the crew, Mike Shannon saying thanks for watching and good night.